Let's pray together, church. Father, we are thankful that although in this life we do have enemies, we have those that would come against what God is trying to do within us and through us. God, we thank you that you are greater this morning than any enemy that we could possibly have. And we know we have the enemy of Satan who despises our soul. He hates our life. He wants to steal our joy. He wants to steal our eternity with you. But Father, we are thankful this morning that greater is he that's within us than he that is within this world. And so, Father, I pray that the song that we just sang would be a reminder to us that when we come into the storms of this life, that when pain enters, God, when sickness enters, when seemingly defeat enters into the equation, that if we will just turn our praise to you in the middle of the storm, that you will intervene in a way that you can only do. Father, we thank you that you're not distant from us, that you aren't up in some cloud somewhere just looking down and not caring about what's going on but father you are intimately involved in our day-to-day -day lives and father you are present here in this service today and i thank you for the spirit of worship that we have i thank you god that even though we lost an hour of sleep last night that we're not coming in here using that as an excuse but we are worshiping and we are seeking and we're asking for more of you today. And so God, I pray that any plan that the enemy would have against us, any weapon that's form formed against us, we know your word declares it will not prosper. It will find no foothold, it will find no root, it will find no place within us because the Holy Spirit lives within us and is pushing out all the space, all the territory that the enemy might possibly take. And God, I pray you'd push out a little bit more today. If there's an area of our life that we're holding back from you, if there's a fear that we're holding on to, God, if there's anything that's in between us and you, God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that would be removed, that you would refine us with your fire, that the dross would burn off and only what is pure would remain. And so, God, we offer this time to you. We offer the rest of this service, our lives to you, our hands, our feet, our voices. God, we pray that you would so possess us that you might use us in a, a way that people would have to declare only God could have done that. And, Father, I'm thankful for the leadership of this church. I'm thankful for those who are called to authority here. But at the same time, God, it's not just a select few that you want to use, God. It's each and every one of us. Remind us of that again. Lord, when we leave this place, we want to be different. When we leave this place, we want to be better. When we leave this place, God, we want to reflect your light and your love in a way that we never have before. And so we pray that you would do it again. We pray that you would minister to our hearts in a great way today, God. Thank you for your presence. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray everything that we prayed. And God is the only name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. So it's in his magnificent, wonderful, and holy name that we pray these things. And Rushwood said together, amen. Thank you so much for being here to worship with us. You may be seated.
this morning. Um, how you like that song? I call that a, yeah, that's an awesome song, man. That's, I call that a Randolph County song because the songwriters actually come from this county, actually grew up here, and so uh, we're just thankful that God is using them to take his praise around the world. And uh, maybe we'll tell you someday the story behind that song. If you haven't heard it, there's an amazing story of how that song was born, of how God laid it on the songwriters' hearts to write that. Um, but I always try to, or a lot of times I try to give you something good to start out with. And Pastor Jason did a lot of talk about Duke and North Carolina this morning, and I don't want to belabor that point, but I felt like you Duke fans might be a little down today. And so I wanted to give you some encouragement. I just, I just want you to remember your best player is about to come back. The ACC tournament is starting, and we know that Duke's best player, the ACC tournament ref, will be back in play this weekend. So don't despair. Don't worry. He's been great for you guys for years, so I'm sure he'll come through for you again this coming weekend. Just wanted to give you some encouragement this morning. Some encouragement. Didn't want you to feel too far down. But seriously, seriously. If you weren't here with us last week and you didn't catch the sermon online, you should have caught it online. But anyway, if you didn't catch it online, by the way, it's there all the time. If you're looking, if you aren't able to be here with us on Sunday mornings, we have our entire service that we put on through Facebook Live, and you can watch that on our Facebook page for the rest of the week. And you can even go back and kind of go through the archives if you want to on there. So we have that. We also have just my sermon portion. Uh, of the service which is always on YouTube so if you have a YouTube channel or if you have a YouTube account go on there type in Rushwood Church and my sermon just the sermon portion will be on there the sound quality because our live quality is not quite as good the sound quality on YouTube is better um, as far as that goes so if you miss a sermon you can find it on our YouTube account we'd love for you to follow that subscribe to that so that when we have a new sermon or something else, where we sometimes we put small portions of the sermon on there, you'll see that and you'll get alerts and you'll be able to follow us on that as well. But if you didn't catch the sermon here or online last week, we have begun a new series and the new series is called The Seven Signs of John. The Seven Signs of John. These are seven miracles that took place in the book of John that... John specifically says, point us to faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is what these seven signs are all about. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the book of John, um, these seven signs point us to the fact that Jesus is Lord, that there is power in his name, and that we can place our faith in him. And we talked a little bit about last week, a sign is not the thing in and of itself. A sign is not... All that important, it's what the sign points to that makes the sign important. And so I thought this morning before we get into the meat of our sermon, sometimes I'm too serious and sometimes I forget to have a little fun while we're in church. I thought we would look at some funny signs before we actually dive into the meat of everything today. C.S. Lewis said if, you want, if you're a public speaker, if you're a preacher and you want people to cry by the end, you've got to make them laugh at the first. So I'm going to try to give you some things, at least I think they're funny, uh, that are some signs that uh, point to something else, but they're kind of humorous. Let's put the first one up, guys, if we can. Things that tell the truth. Small children, drunk people, and yoga pants. I won't say any more about that. I? Yeah, we'll just stop right there. 
This one is from a school. Dear parents, this is right before summer break. Dear parents, tag Yuri at love teachers. I was a teacher. I was a public school teacher for eight years, and as happy as the kids are on the last day of school, they are not the happiest people in the building. I can assure you that. I love that last day of school. In fact, in my classroom, we started counting down 180 days every day on the board every year. Maybe that's why I'm not a teacher anymore. I know some people love it. I didn't. All right, uh, next sign. My wife said that I never listened to her or something like that. My wife is back there somewhere. I see her, and she is, she's like, I'm just so glad my husband listens to everything I say. Try to tell, ladies, you've got to understand, if a man is doing something and you're talking, you might as well not be talking. It just ain't, they're just not going, just, they're not going to hear you. But anyway, I'm, I'm perfect, I'm good, and my wife doesn't have to worry about that, do you, darling? She raised her eyebrows. I saw her eyebrows go up. All right, number four. Ban pre-shredded cheese. Make America great again. They should be punished for that one. That's really bad. That's really bad. And then a classic church sign that I like. Too hot to keep changing signs. Sin bad. Jesus good. Details inside. I like that one. By the way, we ride, it drives my wife crazy. We drive down the road and I pass church signs and I always look to what, see what a church has on the sign. And so many times I go, oh man, why did they put that up? That looks so tense. She's like, why do you care? It's not your church. But anyway, we don't have a church sign. So anyway, we never mess up on ours because we don't have one. But I, I, anyway, I do judge church signs pretty hard sometimes. Enough of that. Enough of that. Let's get to our scripture. Our scripture for today is John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. This is after the wedding at Cana, which we talked about last week, Jesus turning water into wine. And I hope everybody went out and told everybody, because it was the truth, that the bottle I had on the stage was full of non-alcoholic grape juice. I hope you made that very clear, because I know how rumors can get started in Randolph County. But last week, we talked about the wedding of Cana. And so this is after that. It's after John chapter 3 where Jesus meets with the Pharisee Nicodemus at night. In fact, the Pharisee Nicodemus comes to Jesus wanting to know how a person can be saved, how a person can have eternal life. And so John chapter 3 is where we get that famous verse, John 3, 16, that tells us all about how faith in Christ, faith in the Son of God, leads us to eternal life. Then at the beginning of John chapter 4, Jesus goes to Samaria and Jesus meets the woman at the well. And that's a great story. It's not one of the seven signs of John, but it's one of my favorite stories because Jesus did not have to go that direction. There was a path around Samaria he could have taken, but he went exactly there to basically the, a group that was considered the enemy of the Jews so he could meet with this woman, so he could change her life. And then after her life was changed, she went out and told everybody about Jesus. She told everybody how great he was and became an evangelist for Jesus Christ. And so that's a great story. But right, before, right as we are at John chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 43 through 45 is the first part of our text here. Jesus has returned to Galilee. He's returned to the area where he grew up. Galilee is an area around the Sea of Galilee, which is sometimes called Galilee of the Gentiles. There were large Gentile populations there. There were also Jewish populations within Galilee. But a not, not a super important place to the Jews, not a super important uh, area 
but Jesus does amazing work there, and it's in the area where he grew up. John chapter 4, verses 43 through 45 says this. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything that he did there. First quote that I want to point your attention to is, a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. When I applied, when I put in my name to be in the running to be the pastor of this church, one of the leaders uh, of, of our church uh, connection of churches said to me, Brent, Jesus said a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And you're about to go back to your own hometown, church-wise speaking, if this all works out. How do you expect that you'll be able to overcome what Jesus said when he said this principle, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown? And I'll tell you, it's tough. It's tough to work with people who know you. It's tough to speak to people who have a history with you. It's almost easier to go to a stranger and win a stranger to Jesus Christ or influence somebody you don't know that well and who doesn't know you that well because people remember every bad thing you ever did. They remember everybody, you know, they remember when you messed up. They remember your attitudes. They remember all that. Those who know us very well are very tough for us to win to Jesus Christ. When we're trying to be a witness, it is harder to get our close friends and family to respect us and to respect what we're saying than almost anyone else. You can win hundreds of people to the Lord and your close family members are like, nah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I like this coming from you. I don't know if I buy what you're selling. Even Jesus, his family members doubted him at first. The Bible talks about how his brothers went to him one time and pretty much said, Jesus, give up this thing. You're not the Messiah. You're not the Savior of the world. You're our half-brother. You know, you've got to give this thing up. You've got to quit doing this thing. Even his brothers did not believe him at, the fir at first. Now, after the resurrection, they believed him. After he came forth victorious from the grave, they said, okay, maybe, maybe he was on to something. But until then, his, even his family members had a tough time believing in Jesus. But the Galileans, even around his hometown, had seen one thing that made them more receptive to Jesus than they might have been. And that's that Jesus went into the temple and he ran out the money changers. You remember that scene? Some theologians think it happened twice. Some theologians believe that he did it one time at the beginning of his ministry and one time at the end of his ministry. But if you remember that scene, what was happening? The money changers basically in the temple, you had to bring your money to them you couldn't just use, I don't know if anybody back in the day used to play in arcades. Anybody remember when arcades were a thing? Okay, and you'd go in and you'd play video games, and you couldn't just use your dollars or quarters or whatever. You had to go and you had to get tokens. And these tokens would allow you to play the video game. That's kind of what was going on within the temple, except back in the video game in the arcade days, if you put in a quarter, you got a 25-cent token back. It was an equal exchange. That's not what was happening. These people in the temple, the money changers, were taking a dollar from people, say, and not, not a literal dollar, but if they were in America, taking a dollar and they were giving them back 50 cents worth. So they were stealing from people to, and, and basically creating a... a a fence, a bar from them actually coming in to worship God in the right way. They were making a profit off of religion. They were making a profit off of faith. 
And so that's why Jesus goes in and he kicks their tables over and he drives them out. And Jesus said, look, my, house is, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. You're stealing from people. You're robbing from people. But this is supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a house of worship. And so Jesus actually drove them out. And the people from Galilee were there when that happened. And they said, well, this guy's a little bit different. This guy's a little bit different. He's not like everybody else. I can tell you this. I'm going to give you a little aside, but I think it's worth talking about this morning. <clears throat> Even people who are lost... Even people who don't know God, even people who don't have faith, understand that there's something wrong in getting rich or at least seeking to get rich off of faith, off of religion, off of church. And we hear people say that a lot. They'll say, you know what, I don't want to go to church because all they're in it for is the money. The pastors are getting rich. The churches are getting rich. I don't want to be part of that because they're not really about faith. They're all about money. I don't think that's true. If you do some research, you'll find out the average pastor in America makes about $35,000 a year. That's not a lot of money. Most people who are going into ministry aren't going into ministry to try to get rich. Now, we see people like Joel Osteen, and we see people like Stephen Furtick, and we see people like T.D. Jakes and these big megachurch pastors and televangelists and all, and we see their fine clothes and their nice cars and their homes, and kind of everybody gets painted with that brush. But something in, within people, even people who don't fa have faith, they look at it and they say there's something wrong when it's all about money and it's not about God. And these people, these Galileans, and by the way, let me say this too. If you ever feel like you have a call into the ministry, but you see a call into ministry as a way for you to get rich, to make a lot of money, you're probably not called into the ministry. Probably not called into the ministry. Okay, you need to go do something else, go make some money. God can, God can use you that way. But if you want to get rich, you're probably not called into the ministry. And certainly if that's your goal, don't go into the ministry. We don't need that. We really don't need that. We, we have enough bad publicity and bad press. Don't go into the ministry. But Jesus went in and he overturned the money changers. He drove them out and the people said, this guy's different. He's not in it for the money. He's not in it for profit. He's in it for something more. And so even though they were from his hometown, they were willing to listen to Jesus more than they might have been. Verse 46 says, As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. So Jesus is back in Cana again, that little town. We said if it was in Randolph County, it would be called Eula, a tiny little spot on the map. And Jesus is back, and another miracle is going to happen in this tiny little place that nobody really cared about. A government official comes to Jesus. Government official comes to him. And there's probably some things we can assume, some things we can know about this government official. If he was a government official, he was probably rich. He was probably a wealthy man. He was well off because of his position as a government official. We can also assume that this guy was powerful. Most likely he was working for King Herod. And if you don't know anything about King Herod, he was not an actual Jew. They called him the king of the Jews, but he was set up by the Romans as kind of a figurehead to rule the Jewish people. So he was almost like a fake Jew, if you will, ruling over these people. But he was a very powerful guy, and this guy's connection to him, this official's connection to him, probably meant that this government official was very powerful. We know that the government official lived in Capernaum. 
Capernaum is about 20 miles from Cana, and Capernaum is on the sea. So this guy lives basically oceanside. He, he lives right beside the beach. He wakes up every morning, most likely, opens the drapes, looks out, and there's a beautiful sunrise over the Sea of Galilee. So this guy has prime real estate, a prime position. He's powerful. He's well-known. He's probably well-off. This guy has almost everything that a person could want. <coughs> powerful, rich, but he also had something else. He had a child who was sick. I don't know. It changes your life when you become a parent, doesn't it? I tell, I tell couples as I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, I tell the guy especially, I'm like, look, when you, have, when, when you guys get married and on down the road you have a child, your wife is going to change overnight. And I've had some, some of the groom-to-be say, well, what do you mean? I'm like, just trust me. When that child comes into the situation, I'm not meaning you're losing your wife. I don't mean she's, but she's going to change overnight. Children change your lives. I remember we had, when my wife and I got married, we had, didn't have kids yet, obviously, so we decided to do what a lot of people do, and we decided to get a pet. So we got this Himalayan cat. Little him, my wife loved Himalayan cats. I'm never going to have another Himalayan cat, by the way, because when you have Himalayan cats, you have fur. And fur goes everywhere. I called them tumbleweeds. I mean, we would have tumbleweeds of cat hair going all over the place. I, never never going to happen again. But anyway, we had this little Himalayan. And it was, I, I, I'm not a person who just despises cats unless they're a mean cat. But anyway, we, it was a cute little kitten, beautiful, cute little kitten. And I remember the first night we had him, we let him sleep on the pillows between us and everything. And it was, he was our pet. He was almost like our little surrogate child or whatever. But eventually... Eventually, we had a son named Aiden. And it wasn't too long until we figured out Aiden was allergic to that cat. And that little cat that was so important to us and we liked so much when we first got married and he was our baby and everything, we put that cat outside. He was gone. Why? Because we had a child now. And eventually, that cat disappeared and we're like, oh, well, the cat disappeared, whatever. You know, we're about our child. Children change things. Children become, in a large sense, the center of your world when you have a child. And when you have a sick child, there's nothing worse. Parents, you know. I remember the first time our, our son had a high fever and we couldn't get it to go down and how scary that was. And I remember actually our son, Aiden, I've probably told this story before, but he was born with a congenital mole and about three months in, they said, this is changing, the cells aren't right, we need to do surgery. And you immediately think, I would rather it be me. Then my kid, I would rather it be me. I would rather, look, I would rather take this on myself because you feel so helpless and you feel so in need and that child who is the center of your world is sick and I don't care how rich you are, I don't care how powerful you are, I don't care who you work for, I don't care where you live, when you have a sick child, you feel helpless. And that was the position that this man was in. This government official felt helpless he had everything, everything at his fingertips, but he had a sick child, and he couldn't do anything to get this child's fever to break, and the child was at the point of death, and he knew that he needed help. So this man takes off on a 20-mile journey. Now, a 20-mile journey for us is not that much. We just get in the car 20 minutes later, or so we're there. But it was a big deal back then. It was a, a large journey to undertake if you were trying to get somewhere in a short amount of time. So this man goes on a 20-mile journey, uh, basically a whole day's walk from his home to find Jesus, to try to get Jesus to save his son. 
Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I imagine that word about Jesus had started to spread. Look, there's a miracle worker. This guy turned water into wine at Cana. He's a Jewish rabbi. He, he's an amazing teacher. And I, I'm sure word about Jesus had spread all over. And this guy knew about Jesus. And so he set off and he said, I'm going to find this guy. Maybe this guy can save my son. Verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and he begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. Here's this government official, rich, powerful, amazing place to live, everything he needed, and amazing picture. He's begging a little Jewish rabbi who essentially lived like a homeless man. He's begging him, please help me. Don't have anybody else to help me. Please save my son. Please do something to help my son. There's a couple of things, by the way, that I love about this guy. I love this guy. I love how he is. I love his heart. I love his passion. There's some things I love about this government, this royal official. The first thing is, is this is a man who was involved in the life of his son. This was a man who was involved in the life of his son. In the ancient world, that was not a given. That was not a given. Children were not seen exactly the same way they are today, especially among those who had power and influence. A lot of times in the ancient world, children were seen as just offspring. They weren't seen as somebody that we love as much as we are connected to our kids today. By the way, Christianity has had a big effect on that. Christianity has changed the world over time to the point people don't even realize it. And now they're, they're coming against Christianity when Christianity has given them a big part of their worldview. But that's a different sermon for a different day. A lot of times children were seen as just offspring. With boys, you had to have at least two, and they'd say, you need an heir and a spare. You need someone to be the heir to the family kingdom and they, or family inheritance, and you need a spare in case something happens to the first one. But they were not seen as beloved children oftentimes, especially in the Roman culture. Oftentimes, children of wealthier families were raised by tutors, and they were kept at a distance from their families. I don't know if you ever look at any documentaries or anything that talks about the British royal family, but the distance a lot of times between the children and the parents because it was tutors and it was caregivers that actually did most of the raising and not the parents. And so a lot of times there was distance between them. But not this father. That's why I love this guy. His son is dying. He's heard of this healer, this rabbi, and he tears off to find him to see if he can help this boy. He loves his son, and he's determined to save him. Mom, Dad, this morning, you need to be involved in your children's life like that. I'll be honest, in America, we are too disconnected from the children that we are raising. We send them off for, you know, and somebody else takes care of them for most of the day, and we kind of outsource that. And then a lot of times when they come home at night, we're plugged into our cell phones and we're plugged into what we're doing online, and, and we're kind of vegging out and trying to recover from the day. And essentially, a lot of times, we're just letting our children raise themselves. We're not involved in our children's lives as much as we should be, dads especially. I, and I know you, a lot of times you guys may think, boy, Brent, you are rough on men, but I think we need to be rough on men in this culture. Because men are not doing their jobs. 
Every time I see a troubled kid, every time I talk to a kid who, and I won't say every time, that's too broad of a statement, but the vast majority of times when I talk to a young man or a young lady who's gotten into trouble and seems to have no direction, they will say the same story over and over again. They do not have a father who is present in their lives and plugged into their lives. Dads are just not doing our jobs. I know my dad did his job when I was growing up. He was present he, he, he spoke into my life, and by the way, my dad was there to correct me if there was ever a problem. I knew not to come against my dad. My dad was going to take me down. He, was going to he said, I brought you in this world. I'll take you out. That was one of the way he saw things. But you know what? My dad was extremely loving, and we didn't have a lot of problems because he was such a strong figure in our household that I didn't come against him. We worked together, we loved each other, but I knew that he was the authority and I knew that he was involved in my life. Mom and dad, it's not enough just to feed and clothe your children. And you shouldn't get a lot of credit just for feeding and clothing your children. That's what you're supposed to do. Congratulations, pat on the back. That's what you're supposed to do. I take care of my kids, I feed them and I clothe them. So what? That's what you're a parent. That's what you're supposed to do is feed and clothe your children. It's not enough just to house them until they're 18 years old. You need to fight for them. And look, we, I, I say this a lot. We have an enemy out there. We have Satan. And right now he is coming against our young people in ways we never thought of before. Internet, social media, all that has opened up a whole new world. And I don't think we understand it as well as they do. And we, if you're not watching what your kid is watching, if you're not superintending their eyes and their ears and what they're taking in, they're going to fall. It's that simple this day and time. If you're not careful about... My son came to me a little bit ago and he said, hey, in their bedroom they have a DVD player connected to their television. I know DVDs are out of style, but that's what they got right now. A DVD player connected to their television. They don't have any sort of sort of broadcast or antenna or anything like that. That's all they got in their bedroom. And my son came to me a while ago and he said, Dad, can we get something in our, in our bedroom where we can watch television other than just movies that we have on DVD? And I thought about it for a second and I said, no. No, you can't. There's so much garbage out there. There's so much of the world out there. There's so much of a satanic thing. You just can't. Sorry. Sorry. Maybe, maybe later we'll talk about it, but right now, no. No, I'm going to make sure I know what you're watching. I'm going to make sure I know what you're taking in. I'm going to make sure our kids can't have, they do have handheld devices, electronic devices. They don't take those into their bedroom and watch stuff on that. Unless it's the Andy Griffith show. We have said the Andy Griffith show is okay. We don't let them do that. Why? Because Satan has a plan against our kids. And they're taking stuff in and they're getting brainwashed and they're getting desensitized. And look, parents, if you're not involved in the life of your kids in this day and time, they're going to fall. They're going to fall. They're going to fall, and they're going to fall away from the faith. Look, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer or anything this morning. I'm just telling you that's the facts. So many influences out, out there, so many bad things. You need to fight for your kids. I fight for my kids and who they hang out with. I'll stalk somebody on Facebook. A kid wants to hang out with my kid, I'll go look at their parents. Oh, no, I don't like what they're, no, you can't hang out with this kid. I don't like what they're doing there. I don't like what they're, no, you can't hang out with them. I'm sorry. But, Dad, I don't care. I don't care. I'm not there to be my, my kid's friend. I'm not there just to make them happy. I, I'm there to be their dad. Got to fight. I, and I would say this. The friendship relationships that your children have are probably more important than anything else in defining them. I wish it wasn't that way. 
but it is that way. The relationships they have with other people, the friends that come into their lives, you have to superintend that. You have to watch that. You have to guard their hearts. I had a talk with my younger son yesterday. We talked a lot. I've done this with my older son, did this with my younger son. We started talking about girls. And I said, hey, you know, you kind of like girls yet? And he's like, uh. You know, he's 10 years old. He's like, uh. I was like, but they are way prettier than boys, right? He's like, yeah. I said, okay, good. We're good. We're, we're tracking right on that one. Tracking right on that one. But anyway, we'd start talking. I said, look, he's 10 years old. I'm already starting to talk about this. Look, here's the kind of girl you need to look for. She needs to have the same values as you. And I said, do you know what values mean? Well, maybe. And so we talked about what values are. And I said, look, God needs to be first. Your family needs to be second. Your church needs to be third. And in order to take care of all those three things, you've got to know how to take care of yourself. And we talked about that. And we talked about personalities. And we talked about hard work. And we talked about all that. And I said, look, you want a girl one day, you're going to look for a girl. And that's fine and that's good. And that's probably what needs to happen unless God calls you to be single for the rest of your life. And, and that's fine too if that's what he calls you to do. But I said, when you look for a girl, you're going to want to find a girl who's attractive to you. I think that's an important part of it. But that isn't the only part of it. A lot of pretty faces out there, and there's nothing behind them, nothing good behind them. And so we talked about that. What am I telling you? I'm trying to be involved in my son's life. I try to be involved in my kids' lives. I try to be proactive. Look, the culture is coming at them at younger and younger ages. Why am I talking about dating to my son at 10 years old when I'm not going to let him do that for a good long while? Why am I doing that? Because culture is coming at them earlier and earlier, so that means we have to come and we have to talk to them earlier and earlier. And, and parents, if your voice is silent, then the voice of the world is the only one they have to hear. And it's going to overwhelm them and it's going to overcome them and you're going to lose your kids. We're already losing our kids to the culture. We need to stem the tide. I love this father. He's proactive in his son's life. He cares about his son. I'll, drive, I'll, I'll get on my horse and I'll ride 20 miles to find this Jewish rabbi who may or may not be able to help, but I'm going to take this opportunity because I love my son and I care about him and I want to see his life saved. We should be that way. We should be that active. We should be that passionate about being involved in our children's lives. Boy, I could talk about that a lot longer. I've got to move on this morning, but that's so important. The second thing I love about this man is this man knew where to go for help. He knew where to go for help. Number one, he did not go to King Herod. I mean, the king, the most powerful person in the area, and this guy worked for him, but he didn't go to King Herod. At least it doesn't tell us that he went to King Herod. It doesn't say anything about him. You would think maybe this king had connections or he had, you know, somebody that he could reach that might could help, but no, this father didn't go to King Herod. He didn't go to a physician. He didn't go to the local doctors, and I have nothing against doctors. That's not what I'm saying this morning. But he didn't put it, this was a dire situation. This was a dire situation. He didn't put his faith ultimately in physicians. He didn't go to some sort of faith healer. He didn't go to some sort of witch doctor or somebody like that that was in the culture. He didn't go to that. Instead, this father went to Jesus. He went to Jesus. Parents, i got to ask you this morning, when's the last time you took your kids to Jesus? There's a couple of ways you can take your kids to Jesus. Number one is you can make sure they're in church. And I know that we're in a different world. I, I, just saw a, I just saw an article a couple of days ago that said the average church attender now has 19 Sundays a year in church. 
So you got 52 Sundays in a year. The average churchgoer is there about 19 times now. It's getting lower and lower. And I praise God that we're able to, to have online connection and you can go back and you can watch the sermons and that's good and that's great. But it should not take the place of actually being part of the body of Jesus Christ, actually being face-to-face -face with other Christians, actually getting in here and edifying each other and loving each other and worshiping together and praying together. That's a good thing for when we can't be there. But when we can be there, we need to come together. So I'd invite you to look. If you're watching online, maybe you've been watching us for a while, and I know there's another camera back there. If you're watching us and you're saying, I don't know, I don't really have to come, come. There's something different that happens here than what happens out there. And I know God's everywhere, but there's something special when we come together. There's something special when we come together as a family and worship together. And so we can take our kids to Jesus by taking them to church and having them be part of the family, part of the body of Jesus Christ. But more than that, mom, dad, when is the last time you have specifically called your child's name in prayer to Jesus Christ? When's the last time you have taken them to Jesus in prayer? Or let me ask you an even deeper question. When is the last time your child heard you take their name to Jesus Christ in prayer? Heard you pray for them? So important. We pray about every facet of our kids' lives. My wife and I, we pray, we pray for the job that they're going to have, the career decisions that they're going to have to make. We pray for the spouse that they're going to have one day. We pray that God would protect that spouse and would keep them pure and, and would bring them together at the right time. And we pray for that. We pray for every facet of their lives. We pray for their fears. We pray for their anxieties. We pray for all of that. And we don't go to Buddha and we don't go to Muhammad and we don't go to some faith healer and we don't go to Oprah and her next guru of the week or whatever. We go to Jesus Christ. We go to the one who can actually do something about it, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. If I'm going to talk to somebody on behalf of my children, I'm going to the greatest. I'm going to the greatest, and that's Jesus. I love this father. He takes his child, his child's name, to Jesus. Jesus, do something for my child. Jesus, help this child. Jesus, it's too big for me. Jesus, work in this child's life. When is the last time, Mom and Dad, your, your kids have heard you pray for them by name? This dad went to Jesus. Verse 48. Jesus asked, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? Now, some people think this means that this man was a Jew because the Bible tells us that Jews seek signs and wonders. So very well, this guy could have been a Jewish fellow who was working for a fake Jewish king who was working for the Romans, if, they, if you can wrap your head around all of that. But will you never believe in me unless you see signs and wonders? That doesn't throw this guy off when Jesus says that. The official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Jesus, this is urgent. Jesus, I know we can have a theological talk some other time. Jesus, I need you to do something. Jesus, I need you to come and help my little boy. Then Jesus told him, I love, man, Jesus sometimes throws out questions and says things just to test our faith, just to see if we'll go a little further. Verse 50, then Jesus told him, go back home. When he said, go back home, I bet the guy's face sunk. I bet he thought, oh no, he's sending me away. He's not going to come with me. He's not going to pay me any attention. Jesus says, go back home, but he doesn't stop there. He says, your son will live. Your son will live. And the man believed Jesus, what Jesus said and started home. I love that faith. He's not there begging him, Jesus, no, I ask you to come with me. 
Jesus, I'm a royal government official. You better come with me right now. It wasn't anything like that. He believed what Jesus said, and he went back home. Some of y'all right now have been praying for things for a long while. We talked about that last week, how as the, as the pots are being filled up with the water and you don't see them changing to wine and time and time again and you keep going back and you're waiting on that miracle and you just don't know why Jesus hasn't done it yet, why God hasn't worked that miracle for you yet. This morning I think somebody needs to hear this. You've been praying and you've been praying and you've been praying and I believe God is saying to somebody this morning, look, it's done. It's done. You can stop the prayers. You can stop seeking time and time and coming back and begging me for this. In faith, believe it's done and it's going to be done. Let your faith rise up. Let your belief rise up and just say, it's done. Quit worrying about this. Quit holding on to this. Quit begging me for this. It is done. I have accomplished this. I believe somebody needs I don't know who it is, but I believe somebody needs to hear that this morning. And this man said, I believe it. And I'm heading back home, and I'm going to trust that what Jesus said is going to come to pass. By the way, just because Jesus did not do it, does not do it the way we think he's going to do it, doesn't mean he's not going to do it. Let me say that again, because that was a lot, of, a lot in there. Just because Jesus doesn't do it the way we think he's going to do it, doesn't mean he's not going to do it. I, I had a belief for a long time that I was going to be the pastor of this church, that God had called me to be the pastor of this church. For a long time, God had settled that in my heart and had been speaking to me about it, and I pushed it back and I ignored it. And I thought what would happen is when the pastor who was here previously retired, then I would just step right in and I would become the pastor of this church, and even there were conversations about that and everything else. I didn't know that God was going to take me from here out to Trent, the big city of Trinity, North Carolina, and I was going to pastor a United Methodist church that was becoming a non-denominational church for four and a half years, and that was not in my plan. That was not how I saw it coming. That's not how I thought it was going to happen. And I've probably told you this story before, but I knew after I'd preached for them for about four Sundays that this little church was going to ask me to be their pastor, and I knew that I was going to tell them, no, that's not in my plan. That's not how God is going to do this thing. No, no, I'm just going to tell them no. That's not where I'm headed. But I remember driving out Hoover Hill Road, which is the road west of town this little church was on, and I remember it was fall, and I remember the fall leaves, and I was listening to some worship music, and I was praying about it, and I was like, God, you, you know I'm going to tell them no, because that's not the plan. That's not the way this is supposed to work out. And I remember about halfway to the church on that road, God spoke to me, and he said, Brent, they need you. Go there. Now, I'm not saying it was audible. It was louder than that. Brent, they need you. Go there. And so that was not a detour that I had planned. That was not the way it was supposed to work out. And yet, that's where God wanted me. And he did things in me in those four and a half years when I was not here, before I came back here, that he could not have done if I stayed here. Just because he doesn't do it the way you think he's going to do it doesn't mean he's not going to do it. He still has a plan, but you've got to trust that he's going to work out all the details. I'll tell you why you can't work out all the details and I can't work out all the details. We're just not smart enough. But he's God and he knows everything. There may be detours along the way. It may not look the way you think it should look. But keep having faith. Keep trusting and believing. When Jesus, when he's going to accomplish it in you, he is going to accomplish it in you, even if it looks a different way than you thought that it ever would.
True faith, I put this one on the screen, at least I hope I did. Tried to put it in my notes. True faith not only trusts the man, it trusts his plan. Not only trust that Jesus is going to do it, but he's going to do it the way that it needs to be done. If we'll follow him, if we'll get self out of the way, if we'll surrender to him, it not only trusts the man, it trusts his plan. Verse 51. While the man was on his way home, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, Yesterday afternoon at 1 o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that was the very time Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus did in Galilee after coming back from Judea. The first miracle Jesus did was turning water into wine. And we said that's all about kingdom fullness, that God wants us to have a rich and a full life in him. Not so much for ourselves, but so we can bless his name and we can bless other people. So that we are blessed so that we can be a blessing. This miracle, in this miracle, Jesus turned disease into peace. Disease into peace. The word disease, I don't know if you've ever looked at it, the word disease has two parts. Dis meaning no, and ease meaning ease. No ease, no tranquility, no peace. When you have a disease in your body, you don't have ease in your body. You have the opposite of easy. You have the opposite of good. You have disease within your body. And there can be disease in this world too. It doesn't have to just be a sickness or an infliction. But when Jesus healed the young boy, he turned disease into ease. He turned uneasiness into peace. And it made the whole family into believers in Jesus Christ. Their faith in Jesus healed their physical disease, and then their faith in Jesus healed their spiritual disease. Because I want you to understand, Jesus was a healer, but his primary mission for coming to this world was not just to heal sicknesses. It was not just to work miracles and people say, oh wow, he could heal sicknesses, he could heal maladies, he could heal physical problems. That was not Jesus' primary mission for coming to this world. The primary mission Jesus Christ had in coming to this world was to bring total healing and especially salvation for lost mankind. Jesus wants to heal our greatest sickness, which is our sin. And I know it's not popular anymore to talk about sin necessarily in church, and we're supposed to call it mistakes or problems. Sin. S-I-N, sin. A willful transgression of the known law of God. Sin, that's our biggest problem. My biggest problem and your biggest problem is sin. It's not sickness. It's not unhealth. It's not problems that are surrounding us. It's our own sin. And that is the reason, that is the purpose that Jesus came was to solve our sin problem. You know, my family can kind of relate to this father's situation, this family situation from John chapter 4. When I was four years old, I was, I was in kindergarten. I started school a year early, which is crazy. I don't know that you should do that to your kids. But anyway, I started school a year early. And so at four years old, I was at my kindergarten graduation. I was at Fayetteville Street Christian School. That's where I went for kindergarten. And then I transferred to public school. But I was at the graduation, and we had come through the graduation, and uh, Alice and Steve Wilson, who are members of this church, actually were there. They met us there to celebrate my graduation, and I remember they brought Sir Pizza, 
And even when I was a little kid, I loved to eat. And if you said pizza, I was there, and I'm still, I still love some pizza. I'm not doing it during Lent, but anyway, I, I love some pizza. But after this graduation, I couldn't eat. I told my mom, I said, I just don't feel real good. I don't feel like I can eat right now. And they knew there was a problem at that point because I've always loved to eat. But we went home, and I remember that night. It's, it's funny what you remember from when you were a little kid. But I remember I had a dream, and I guess it was because graduation had just happened and everything. But I was in a fishing boat in the middle of a lake, and my, my kindergarten teacher was in the fishing boat with me. And we were fishing in the middle of this lake, and all of a sudden, in the middle of this dream, everything started to spin. The lake started spinning, the boat started to spin. It was just crazy. And when I woke up, the whole room was spinning. And I called out to my parents, told them I wasn't feeling good, and they came in there, and I had a really high fever. Really high fever. So high, they eventually rushed me to the emergency room. And when we got there, they found out that I had some sort of blood infection. It was a serious thing. In fact, one of the doctors said to my mom, you have a very sick little boy. So four years old, really high fever. I was in the hospital for about a week because of this. There was another young boy who had the same type of blood infection at the time that I did. And it seemed like to me as a four-year-old, they stuck me with every needle in the hospital. In fact, I remember telling one of the nurses, this better be the smallest needle you've got in this place at four years old. But I was very sick. And they really didn't know if I was going to make it. That's how sick I was with this blood infection. And in fact, the other little boy that had the same thing did not make it. He did not survive. But I was sick, and I didn't seem to be getting any better, and they couldn't you know, get me to overcome this. And my mom and dad had just started a business. My dad was a plant manager at Klausner Furniture, and my mom worked at Klausner, and they had left that to start their own business, and they started their own business in a garage at home, in, in the garage in their house. And there was a little black lady minister that came in, and mom, mom would come as often as she could to the hospital, and when she couldn't be there, there my grandmother would sit with me as I was sick. And so they both happened to be home at this time, not with me at the hospital. And there was this little black lady minister that came in to buy some sewing supplies. And they found out she was a minister. And I don't remember if it was my mom or my dad, but they said, look, our son is in the hospital. He's four years old, and he's really sick. Would you pray for him? And this little lady said, Child, they ain't no time like the present. And she started to pray right there in the middle of their little startup store in their garage. And she prayed, and I don't remember the whole prayer, and I'm sure they can't tell you the whole prayer. But one of the things we all remember she said was, God, heal him from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Make this child whole. Make this child well. Well, from that point on, my fever broke. I started to get better, and obviously I survived, and obviously I'm here today. And I believe it was that prayer, the power of that woman's faith, and the power of that woman's prayer that turned everything around. Sickness, fever, disease. Jesus came to heal that. That little lady took me to Jesus. Never met her. I don't know if they ever saw her again. I don't, I'm sure I never met her in my life. But she took me to Jesus. She took my name to Jesus, and Jesus started to work healing in my body. And that's a great moment that I'll always remember in my life that God made me well. But another moment in my life I'll never forget is at eight years old, twice the age I was when I was in the hospital, right over here in what is now our youth room, I knelt down at the altar and at eight years old I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I knew at eight years old I was a sinner. 
I knew at eight years old I had gone against God and I had broken his heart in many ways. I knew I was doing things that wasn't right. And you say, how much sin can an eight-year-old do? Enough to send you to hell. Enough to send you to hell. If it separates you from God and you don't know Jesus Christ, and I believe I was of the age of accountability because I understood what I was doing was wrong and I understood enough about Jesus and what he had done to save us, enough to send you to hell. But I asked that Jesus would come into my life. I asked that he would be my savior, and I didn't understand it all at that point. All I know is he came into my life, and he's never left since. And I have failed him many times, many times. I'm glad that you all don't know all the times that I have failed Jesus Christ. It would be embarrassing to have all that recounted, but he's never failed me one time. He's always been with me. He's always loved me. He's been the center of my life. And I never once have had, I've regretted a lot of things in my life, but I have never regretted making a decision to follow Jesus Christ at eight years old. I've never regretted making him the center of my life. And so, yes, at four years old, he was my physical healer. He raised me up from something that it could have physically killed me. But even greater than that, at eight years old, he overcame my sin problem, and he raised me up out of the deep, miry clay, and he set my feet on the solid rock of who he is. And I've lived my life based on that from that point forward, and it's been a wonderful life. It's been a great life serving Jesus Christ. So this morning, our worship team is going to lead us in a final song, and it's a song about healing. And maybe you're here this morning, and you need prayer for something in you that's, uh, you know, physically wrong, something you're struggling with, or maybe it's a friend or a family member that's struggling with physically, and they need a physical touch, and God can do that. Jesus can do that. But maybe you're here this morning, and you're struggling with sin. Maybe you know that you're a sinner. You know that you've gone against God. You know that you've broken his heart. You know that you've done your own thing, and you know that if you died right now, you would not make it into his kingdom. You would not have eternal life through Jesus Christ. The great thing about that is there's a really easy remedy. You come forward, you say, Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess that I need you in my life. I want you to be my Savior. I want you to come into my life. I want you to be the king of my life, and I want you to be my Lord, and I want to follow you. And this moment, you can take care of your sin problem which is the greatest problem this world has ever seen. All sickness, all disease, all of that comes from our sin. But Jesus came to take care of that. That's what this story is all about, the peace that comes only through Jesus Christ. Physical, yes, but even greater, spiritual. I'm going to ask that everybody stand this morning. The altar is open. If you need prayer for something physical going on in your life, come for that. If you need prayer for something spiritual, and I understand, look, we got a big crowd, a bunch of people watching, and it's kind of tough to step out. It's kind of tough to be the center of attention. But I want you to understand something. If we can't stand for Jesus Christ in here, we're never going to stand for him out there. And by the way, everybody here is your fan. We love you. We're pulling for you. We're rooting for you. We want to come behind you and pray over you. So when Satan says, you can't go up there, you can't do that. What will people think of you? Number one, it doesn't matter what people think of you. It matters what Jesus thinks of you. But number two, I can tell you, these folks here, they're going to think good thoughts of you. They're going to pray good prayers for you. They're going to be behind you, and they're going to support you, and they're going to be your family. So if you need to step out for either reason, step out this morning. I'm glad that I serve a healer, aren't you? I'm glad that I serve the healer, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Listen as our worship team sings this morning, and you are invited to come for whatever you need. Come and meet with Jesus.
going to ask that the worship team, if we could just sing a little bit more of the chorus of that as people are praying. I don't feel like we're done here yet. And so if we could just sing a little bit more of that and we can continue to pray. Um, I know most of the needs that are represented up here. And uh, I know that God is working. And um, let's have faith together. If you just want to reach your hand out as we just toward these folks, as we continue to sing just a little bit more and pray just a little bit more while God is doing his work this morning. Let's be a, show a sign of unity as a family as we reach out and as we pray over these folks this morning.